Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome again. I was glad to show up in Chicago early this morning and still find snow on the ground. I mean, didn't want to miss that part of fall. It was, it was good to be back. Kath and I were at a wedding. She drove most of the night, which is why she did not make it out of bed this morning because she barely got there. But glad to be here with you. Glad to pick up in our series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the series that we've been calling Rebuild, as we've been watching God, watching in, looking over his shoulder as he's rebuilt his people from the ground up, rebuilt them out of the ruins, as it were. And we've watched him do it, rebuilt uh, this people out of the ruins of their past after they had failed to follow him and he was forced to, to kick them out of the land that he had promised them. But how in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Ezra the priest, and most recently in the days of Nehemiah that we've seen, we have watched as he's brought them back. Rebuilding once again uh, the altar, if you remember at the beginning of the book of Ezra, then the, the, the temple under Ezra, and most recently the walls of Jerusalem, which is where we left off last week at the end of Nehemiah chapter 6. The problem, though, if you turn from there to Nehemiah chapter 7, is that while the city had been rebuilt, wide and large is what it says, the people within it were few, and the houses, no houses, had been rebuilt. So that Nehemiah must now turn his attention uh, to the question of who will populate the city of the great king? Who's going to come in and be part of this city on a hill, the, the light of the world, as it were? Who would be invited to make Jerusalem their home? And, and chapter 7 records Nehemiah's initial God-given interest in those families that had first returned to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel some 90 years before. Why? Because they were the ones, these were the families that had the most skin in the game. They were the ones who had sacrificed the most for the cause, who, who came without delay when the, when the first proclamation of Cyrus went out and said, whoever, may, whoever the Lord stirs up, may he return with you, Zerubbabel, to rebuild the altar of your Lord. And so Nehemiah now breaks out this list and looks over it once again because these are the people he's interested in because they had demonstrated uh, their devotion not only in words, but in what they had done and continued to do even in Nehemiah's day. A devotion we're going to look at a little more closely as we focus our attention particularly on what takes place in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Nehemiah chapter 8. And I'm just going to begin by reading it actually from chapter 7, verse 73 through to chapter 8, verse 18. Again, from Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73, all the way through to the end of chapter 8. You can follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. It says this. So the priests 
the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah. On his right hand and Padiah and Mishael and Milkaijah and Hashem and Hashbadana and Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he, as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Amen, lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord and their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Serebiah, Jamin, Akab, Sebathai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kilatah, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. 
And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look in over the shoulder of these people as they celebrate this feast, as they, as they celebrate after having, having unveiled it in, in your word, I pray that we too would look in and understand, that we too would, would gain an understanding of what your word is all about and what it's there for and what it's meant to do in our lives. And I, I pray you would do it to the honor of your son Jesus, whom that book is all about. I pray even now as we just dig into some of the history that's, that, that's laden in this passage, I pray that you would you would unveil your son to us in all of his glory and all that he has done on our behalf that we might ultimately rejoice in him. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, every parent knows that there's a big difference between hearing and doing. Am I right? There is a big difference between hearing and doing. But I'd venture to say that my parents knew it more than most. And that's because my parents were my parents. And I had an issue as a kid making my way from the hearing to the doing. I don't know what it was my dad would have said. He had his head in the clouds too much. I don't know why that was or where that came from. But I think my parents knew more than most that there's a big difference between hearing and doing. And one moment in my childhood that really sticks out as a prime example of the deficiency of my adolescence was the time that I asked my dad if I could drill a hole through the train set he had built me. This is a, and this is not like a little train set. This was a four by eight foot train set that took up a whole room in our basement. If I could drill a hole through the center of this train set, because I had the bright idea that I wanted to drop a level down and see this train go in places it had never been before. And I told my dad that I, I knew what I was doing. And, and, and he asked, he said, he, said he, he gave me the advice that he always gave. He said, he said measure once. Right? No, no, measure twice. That's a hearing problem, right? He said, measure twice. Cut once, right? That's how it's supposed to be. Measure twice, cut once, you know, no, check on what you're going to do, see if this is even this possible. Yeah, yeah, dad. Yeah, 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 it is. Well, I went at it and I, I measured, not, I didn't even think I measured once. I just cut like 12 times and ended up with this hole in his beautifully landscaped train table that never saw a, a train go through because it was like the San Andreas Fault running right through the middle of this thing. And my dad eventually uprooted the entire train thing. Later on in life, made the whole thing over again for my brother. Now I actually ended up with, with the pieces of it in, my, in our basement. And I'm, I'm not ever going to do that for my son. I don't know why you would because all parents know, right, that there is a big difference between hearing 
and doing. There is a big difference between hearing and doing. And the point is, is that when it comes to our relationship, though, with our parents, and how much more our relationship with God, the hearing doesn't really mean much if it never gets to the doing. The hearing doesn't really mean much if it never gets to the doing, which is really what I want to consider today, and particularly how this people's devotion to God here in Nehemiah chapter 8 was displayed first in their desire to hear God's word, but also then second, in their willingness to do it. That for them, they got right what as a child, I only ever seemed to get wrong. That the two went hand in hand. That like the apostle James said, these were, were doers of the word and not hearers only, being those who looked into the perfect law and persevered, and who in their doing were ultimately blessed. So first, their desire to hear is what we're gonna look at, and then second, their willingness to do. First, let's look at how their devotion to God was displayed in their desire to hear him which is what we see as we transition from chapter seven with all the people in their towns, a phrase that we've heard actually quite often if your ears have been tuned to it, with all the people in their towns to chapter eight where they gather as one man in the square before the water gate, which is, just to be clear, not the water gate of Nixon. This is a different water gate. They gather before it, just one of the, the many entrances that had been built into the city's wall. And the people gather there as one man, just as their foreparents, if you look back at Ezra chapter three, had gathered in the days of Zerubbabel, some 90 years before. They gather as one man. But here, the scene is slightly different than the one recorded back in Ezra chapter three. Because there, and all throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah up until this point, Back there, the, the concern for God's word depended almost entirely on the leadership. Have you picked up on that? That all throughout, it's the leadership pushing the agenda that we are going to be a people that come under God's word, that live under God's word. But what's different here? Here, it's not Jeshua and his fellow priests or Zerubbabel and his kinsmen. But here, look at what happens when the, the people of God gather. As one man, verse one, they're the ones to tell Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Which is something, right? Because we can pretty easily fall into that trap of thinking of God's word as a sort of punishment, can't we? I mean, if we're just being honest. Thinking about sitting under God's word as a sort of punishment that we have to sit under when we've done something particularly bad or failed to do something that we should have done that was good. Like the next level timeout, right? It's like an adult timeout. Now you've got to go to church, right? Because these, but the picture here is quite different. These people don't seem to think of it as a punishment as much as they think of it as a, a privilege. 
And this is what they're calling for when they, they get the chance. Not the, not the latest episode of whatever TV show that they've gotten hooked on. Not the latest YouTube clip of their, their go-to late-night host. Not that night's news report with whatever pundit who's going to tell them what's what in the world and, and how they should think and how they should live and how they should vote. No. When they get the chance, they want to hear from God. It's a devotion thing. And notice what it's called because the title is significant. What's the Word of God called? It's called here, the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. The book of the law of Moses is in the historical document that recorded the founding, their founding as a people. When God spoke to that man named Moses, laid out what the relationship between God and his people was going to look like. But while it's historical in one sense, it's also what? The law that the Lord commanded Israel, extending through Moses to the people. So it's at the same time imminently contemporary which is something we would do well to remember today because we think of this thing as a, a dusty old book that, that often makes no sense to us that ought to be left on the shelf. Look at them, though. This is already a thousand years old at this point, and yet they're longing for it, ready for it, waiting for it, calling for it. They want to hear from God. This ancient book that it's both rooted in history and at the same time written for today. We would do well to remember that. Not unlike our country's constitution, at least what it was, I think what it was, what it was written up for, right? Written up, yes, in the, in the context of, of our founding fathers to address the particular concerns of our nation at its birth. But, but what? Very much written in such a way to extend beyond the original context into our current situation today. So too, even more so, the written word of God. And this people recognized that. So verse 2, as the priest brought the, the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on that first day of the seventh month, men and women and all who could understand, because God's word doesn't have an age limit on it. You don't have to grow up into God's word. It's, it's when you're ready to, to understand it, right? It's for all who could understand. It's to be heard by all. And it says, Ezra read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Now get this, early morning until midday. Early morning, first thing, sun comes up until the middle of the day. Six hours, which is why next week we'll be extending our service. <laughs> no, but six hours and look at what, it's, it, what it says at the end of verse 3. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Which was a statement back then. But imagine how much more it would be a statement today. In our ADD, ADHD, LED, LCD, LMNOP kind of world. 
You imagine like what kind of statement that would be in our world today. Because this is not, as you might suppose, a statement about God's word and how captivating it is. Because sometimes, again, if we're just being honest, it isn't. This is a statement about God's people and how much they cared to listen. Which ought to sting a bit for those of us who have just written off our kids' attention issues as incurable, just to take one area that this this sort of comes down, touches in life. This ought to sting a bit for those of us who, who have written off our kids' attention issues, right? Because we have to admit that maybe we're not the whole problem, but we certainly perpetuate the issue when we put them in front of a screen their whole life. When we take their attention and we minimize it so that maybe not six hours, they can't even stand six minutes in front of God's word, and neither can we often. How long does it take when you sit down, one, the umpteenth time that you're gonna renew this sort of vow to the Lord, that we're gonna care about your word, how long does it take to trail off and forget what you're doing? But look at this, six hours, and all God's people were attentive to God's word. Perhaps worst of all, it suggests that we're not as devoted to God as his people were back then. Because this is the mark of what it means to, to be God's people. This is the transforming power of God's word in the life of God's people. And just look at some of the indications in the text of that devotion. Verse four, Ezra stands on a wooden platform, elevated above the people, above, so that the word of God rests over his people. Not just for the practical advantage uh, for the, the, the book to be heard, but for the ritual symbolism that the book was in charge. As they're here being called a, a scribe, which means he, he wasn't going to speak for himself, right? He was just going to pass on to the people what God spoke. And Ezra is joined, look at it there, by 13 others, presumably laymen. These names are not familiar except the familiar names that several characters in the book would have shared. These names are not familiar. We don't know where these guys come from. Apparently, they're just picked out of the people. Because this is not about the guy up front. This is about the the word funneling out through them. So he's joined by these laymen whose names are recorded here. We, we, We don't know anything else about them, suggesting that even from the time Ezra first stands to read, this isn't gonna be a one man show. But rather is what? Meant to be a family affair. And as Ezra stands and opens the book, it says in verse five what? All the people stood. Why? Because they stood in in solidarity with the one teaching them. And Ezra verse six, blesses the Lord. Why? Because this is just about the book, for the book's sake. But about the God who speaks through the book. The people answer, amen and amen, lifting up their hands to to receive, bowing down their heads to submit and worshiping God. Again, because their desire is to what? 
hear him. Because they believe that the, the God who created this world cared enough to speak into the mess we made of it and to tell us the way he paid back to himself. But let me just draw your attention to the fact that this first point isn't just about a desire to hear with one's ears, but a desire to understand with one's mind. Do you see it there? Because the Bible isn't a book of magic spells. And some of us get into this. There, there's value. I think there is a value in just straight reading through it almost mindlessly, not even thinking about it, that you're exposing yourself to it. Certainly a young child, that you're cramming that into them during their developmental stages, right? That they're going to be able to repeat this book better than their parents. There is value in that. But that is not the intent here. The intent is not simply to, to peruse over and hope that it seeps into your pores somehow. The intent is not simply to hear with one's ears, but a desire to understand with one's mind. You see it? It's not a book of magic spells. So to the 13 laymen on the platform with Ezra are added now 13 Levites on the ground who walked among the people as Ezra read. Who, verse 7 helped the people to understand. It says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is the job description of any shepherd of God's church, of God's people, to, to take the word of God and make it understandable. God forbid, I know I've done this before, make it more confusing but it's to make it more understandable for God's people, to break it down, to, to, to clarify what it says, to, to, to break down the barriers so that it can be seen for what it is, and then to push it into people's lives. So you have these Levites on the ground. Isn't it interesting that hasn't changed this side of the cross? that this has always been God's way, that the word of God is spoken over God's people and is funneled down into their people, into, through what? The, the shepherds God puts over them and, and then through the, the shepherds of each household, that this is how it was meant to work. Funneling down into the people, which is okay, isn't it? It's okay, that's not a bad thing to be dependent on others to understand God's word because it's not like we're saying that the Bible is a secret book with a secret message that only some have access to. It's not what we're saying. It's just that we're acknowledging that it, it's meant to be understood and how on the one hand, we sometimes have to stand on the shoulders of others to understand it. Even though on the other hand, we gotta recognize that with a little work, it can be understood. That's not a bad thing, that we're meant to do this in community, not off in some closet, which is really where, if you just think back to your own experience, all the confusion happens, right? Doesn't it? I mean, I've had some confusing Bible studies before. I've never been as confused, though, when I've been left to myself in my closet. 
This is how this is meant to work. Just like the people here who at first were told did nothing when they they heard the law but weep, they misunderstood it. See there in verse 9? And wept not just because Ezra was reading for six hours, (laughs) which would be reason enough to weep. Probably weeping, why? Because reading the law, they, they saw in it a weight they could not bear. But what happens? Once it was explained to them and they understood it, it says in verse 12, now they're not weeping. Now all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to those in need and to make great rejoicing. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And their devotion to God was displayed first in their desire to hear his word, to hear and to understand. Which is a great question to ask. Where do you go to understand God's world? Where do you go to make sense of the problems you face on a daily basis? And where do you go to try and find the solutions? This is what the word of God is for. This is what it's for, to address these very things and to do so in the community of God's people, written in a historical context, but written through that to extend to today. And yet, where do we end up going? Flipping on a screen again, running after everything else besides This is the devotion of this people displayed first in their desire to hear God's word, but displayed second in their willingness to do it, to act on it, to have it transform their lives. And here I'd invite you to look at where the story goes, beginning in verse 13, where it says, on the second day, the heads of father's houses right, the guys who were responsible for taking this word and embedding it within their families. The heads of father houses, it says, of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. To study, this is day two. So you have a Bible study Thursday morning, guys. This is day two, right? This is the next thing, the follow-up. Day two, one more, right there, back in it, right? To study in the sense that they weren't satisfied with the general exposition of the law. They weren't satisfied with just somebody talking and laying it bare, but what? Wanted to dig into what it meant for them. That's what this word to study means. It means to to search out and to, to, to really apply it to their own lives, to their own contest. To ask not only what it meant back then, but what it means for us today to study it for us. Not because they wanted to to do it apart from others, right? to study it for themselves. Not because they wanted to do it apart from others or apart from those who had devoted their lives to doing it most. I love being in conversation as a conversation partner for that. I don't have to do that apart. Or some of the guys, some, some, some people in our midst have, have done this in a way better than most, right? They've done this. That's, you don't need to go apart from the community to do that. It's to dig in together because we wanted, they, these guys, they wanted to dig into its implications for them, 
or what you might say, you might call application for them. They want to dig in. They want to, they want to get to the arrow, right? You've done this now, right? We've, we, this is how we've been studying the Bible together. To get to the arrow, to ask, what does it have to do with my head, my heart, and my hands? What would it look like for me to walk away from here and the author to be satisfied that I have been transformed in the way that they intend? What is my life, how does my life have to shift for them to feel like the word has had its way? This is what they're after. And it says that they found, just look at this for a particular example, they found written in the law that that the Lord had commanded by Moses were the stipulations that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And you think, what on earth? This is what they found? This is what you You dig in to God's word and you end up being sent out to gather branches and make booths. What on earth is a booth? And what is, the, what is the point of this? Goes on to say that they did it all, though. Gathering branches for themselves from the countryside, building these little makeshift booths all over the city and celebrating what verse 17 says hadn't been celebrated like that since the days of Jeshua or Joshua, the son of Nun. Displaying, just for a moment, let me just say, displaying in their devotion, not only their desire to hear God's word, but also their willingness to do it. But of all the things, of all the things that, that they could have found in the book of the law, why is this the one we're told about? Does this not seem odd? Does this not seem on this funky little feast with these funky little booths and everyone living on their roofs for a week and and in the courts of their houses and in the courts of the, the house of God? Why is this the one thing that they focused on? Well, there's probably something to be said that the fact uh said about the the fact that this was the time of year it was, right? This was the seventh month. So most practically speaking, this was the next thing on the agenda, right? Well, it's the seventh month. We missed a lot of other things, but it's the seventh month. We should celebrate the Feast of Booths. There's something to be said about that. Seventh month, when the feast was supposed to be celebrated, yet between the time that Ezra begins to read the law And the time a week or so, a week and a half or so later, when they actually end up celebrating this, they just seem to skip over the Day of Atonement. Did you know that was in there too? That's a seventh month kind of thing. It's not even mentioned here. The high holy day of the Jewish year. So that... It has to be more, right? Not to say that they didn't celebrate it. Not to say that they skipped it. But it's not even mentioned. So why so much attention on the Feast of Booths? Well, maybe it was for the fact that this feast in particular spoke once more to where they were at. After all, as funny as those booths would have looked in that city at any other time in its history, 
with the people, right, setting up a tent, basically, outside of their house. You ever done that? Sleep in the tent with the kids outside of your house? How ridiculous does that feel, right? I've done that, and halfway through the night, you creep back into the house. And you leave the kids and hope that they don't notice, right? Yeah, as ridiculous as this would have looked at any other time in that city's history, at this point in that history, it doesn't look so ridiculous. Because remember what it said in chapter 7, verse 4. The city had been rebuilt wide and large, but there were no people in it. The people within it were few, and no houses had yet been rebuilt. So this is their first time coming back in to the city. And this Feast of Booths reminded them, as feasts were supposed to do, of something that God had done in the past in bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt, bringing them into salvation in that very promised land. When he brought them to that land where they had, they had no houses to begin with. And reminding them, this feast, reminding them of the past that, that looked very much like their present, even as it set them longing for God to do it again in their future. For God to, to reach into their lives like only God could, like only God ever had, and to save them from the foreign thrones that they were being forced to serve, to not only turn the hearts of kings like Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes for their good, but to finally rule over them as the king of kings, set them longing for, for him to, to someday do it, even though they wouldn't have been able to see it, to someday do it in the person of Jesus who would show up in that city and set up his booth alongside of them. To, as the Gospel of John would say, to, to come in tabernacle, to booth himself with them. To then go in that journey to the cross to finally prepare a place for them in his Father's house where they no longer would dwell in booths any longer, but finally have a place with many rooms. Because it's in the Word of God and our devotion to it, hearing it and doing it, that we are ever pointed, not to what we do to get God or get right with God or, or get to God on our own, but constantly and ever after pointed to what God does to bring us back to himself. So let me just leave you with two thoughts. One with regard to the hearing and one with regard to the doing. First, with regard to the hearing of God's word, let me encourage you in this ADD, ADHD, LED, LCD, elemental P world we live in, let me just encourage you to make room to hear God's word, to build in yourself and anyone under your care an appetite to hear 
God's word, a growing appetite, which means you probably in some ways have to be real intentionally about minimizing the distractions, right? We are all far too busy. Maybe some of you aren't. But the rest of us are all far too busy with far too little time to do anything. Yet we find time being too busy to then go and veg on whatever will help the situation. And yet we need to be intentional, right? If this is the most important thing, if this is how God works in God's world, if this is where God points us to God's son, if this is how we get to know how to live before him and live under him, we gotta make time for God's word. And you gotta be intentional about that. Maybe even like two of the guys, even among us have done in recent weeks, I've heard on separate occasions, two of the, the, the men in our uh, in our midst, have, have gone through and deleted all of the apps on their phone and wiped it, wiped all of the distraction off, disconnected it, one of them, disconnected it from the internet, doesn't have the data anymore, so that he can only check email at work. He can only check his messages at work. He can only do work at work, and then he can't do anything else besides. Maybe you need to do something like that. Because maybe if we went on one of those, those, those areas of your phone that I don't know because I don't, I don't know how that works, but if we went on there and saw how much time you put into such and such and such and such, maybe it would be a little appalling at how much time you really do have and how much time along with the rest of us you really are wasting. We need to be intentional about making time for the Word of God, doing that in whether it's a Bible study, whether it's a, it's a one-on-one reading relationship, whether that's as a family. We're going to start up a, a rhythm, a habit, not because this is how we get to God or get right with God or get God on our good side, but because we want to get God in the midst of us because God gets us to himself. Make room to hear God's Word and start again even if it's failed a thousand times before, start again because it's worth it. Not only to hear, but what? To understand. Don't just do it in a peripheral way either, just blowing past, checklist kind of way. I, I'm, I, I, again, I'm all for that in some context. I think that works with young kids, exposing them to the breadth of Scripture over and over and over again before their minds settle into the mush that is adulthood. But, For you, devote yourself not only to hearing it, but understanding it, to digging in, taking one thing and understanding it better rather than all the things and understanding it nothing. Leave room to hear the word of God. And then, second, on the doing, to do it. Just do it. Every time you sit, uh, whatever passage it is, whatever pericope it is, we learned that word in men's Bible study, Chris brought that into the conversation. Whatever pericope it is, just allow the word to do its work. Ask the question, what is the arrow? For my head, my heart, my hands, how would the author be satisfied with my life if it was transformed by this word the way he wants it to be? And do what the, this guy on uh, uh, his TED Talk said. If you want to you be the, his TED Talk was, how to be the best at anything ever. 
And his TED talk was all about how he was um, in, the, in the Air Force and they would fly these, these missions over. Uh, he was explaining the mission he had gone over into Iraq, Afghanistan, um, this 48-hour bombing trip. Go over, drop your payload um, 24 hours back. It's an incredible amount of time. He said all of that, none of that, actually makes you the best at anything. What makes you the best, though, is that after all of that journey, on your way back, you get out of the plane, all you want to do is hit the sack, go to bed, right? But the, they won't let you. The Air Force brings you into room and forces you to debrief, to ask these three simple questions. What went wrong? What went right? And how can we do better? It's not a bad thing, right? Coming to a passage, coming to a pericope, asking these questions. What have I done wrong? What is this calling me out on? What have I done right? In, in what, is, what is aligning with what this passage wants for me, what God wants from me through it? And how can I do better? Not because it's going to get you to God, get you right with God, get God on your side, but because of what God is doing in his son Jesus Christ, to do all of that on your behalf. So hear the word and do it. And I pray today that it would be reflected in your devotion to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray just that. I pray that looking at the people in Nehemiah chapter 8, people that you're calling to yourself, the people out of whom you're going to populate this city of the great king, a people through whom you're going to send your son. Pray looking at their devotion. Devotion that's displayed in their desire to hear from you and a willingness to do it. I pray that that would likewise be reflected in our lives today. That we would sit under your word as they did. That we would sit around your word as they did and that we would ultimately be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.